From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. To come at uh, a defendant's set of facts, to come at any set of facts with a clean slate and try as best we can to view the facts from the defendant's perspective. We can take different perspectives on any set of facts. We can take the victim's perspective, the defendant's perspective, the prosecution's perspective. But what this document in particular asks us to do is step in the shoes of the defendant and see the history, see his childhood, see everything in context, that events do not happen in a vacuum, that he's more than just his crime. Welcome to Season 9 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Using Vladimir Nabokov's classic novel Lolita, Miami Law's Christina Frohawk explains how we can read the novel as a prolonged sentencing memorandum, or as she calls the exploration, legal fiction. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, with the interview. Hi, uh, I'm so excited to be here with my colleague, uh, Christina Frohawk, who's a professor of legal writing and a lecturer at law uh, at the University of Miami Law School. Um, Christina has written a really, really interesting piece that uh, had me thinking about too many things as I as I read it. The title of the piece is Legal Fiction, Reading Lolita as a Sentencing Memorandum, and it is forthcoming in the Albany Law Review. So first, congratulations on that. Thank you, Charlton. And thanks for the invitation. And by the way, it is forthcoming. But as of about an hour ago today, it's done and available on the Albany Law Review website. So I guess we can officially say it's out now. Well, this is over. Since it's no longer forthcoming, no, I'm it's, leaving. Um, <laughs> it's forthcoming in print. You're too honest. Um, so what made you write this piece? I have been asking myself that since I started writing it this summer. I don't know. I read Lolita, the novel, Nabokov's Lolita, as uh, a young woman at college or right after college, but decades ago. And I, it was always one of my favorite books. I, it has been part of my mind and my life since then. I love this book. It's always one of my favorite reads. And recently I just got the impulse to reread it, but decades later mm -hmm. as a different person with a law degree and an adult now. And I reread it and realized I had completely misread it or just am reading it differently. But there's a, a foreword that I had missed or not read or forgotten about. And the foreword makes clear that what we're about to read is a first person, uh, the narrator's account from prison of his crimes. And it struck me, that's what I'm reading. I'm reading a sentencing memorandum. This is a memoir of a pretrial detainee who's seeking leniency. And through the eyes, through new eyes, as an attorney and as an adult, I realized this is not what I thought it was, or at least art hits us in different ways. It's not, it didn't hit me now the way it did back then. I do not read it as a love story at all anymore. I read it as a, as a legal document. So that's interesting because you said in the piece, and I'm going to quote, you said, the idea of a legal narrative often focuses on identifying a narrative within the law. But you say this article proposes inverting that focus so that we identify the law within a narrative. What does that mean? That means it's not obviously a legal document 
ordinarily we take a legal document and the literature out there on this is fascinating. And I have a lot of it cited in the, in one of the first footnotes that we take a legal document and as, as, as good legal writers, we can be better legal writers if we view, if we find the story in the case facts mm -hmm. and we view, especially a statement of facts in a legal filing as an opportunity to tell a story. So there's a lot of, I mean, there are conferences on storytelling in the law, right? We should draft these documents in a way that captures the story that is the basis for our, for all cases. So that's usually what happens. We have to find the story inside the law and then put it in a legal document. And what I realized upon reading, rereading this novel is it's, as I said, it's, it's sort of, we have to invert that because this is not obviously a legal document. It's a novel and it's a memoir. It's the novel written as a memoir, but there's the law is baked into it because it has the same fundamental structure and the same fundamental normative feel as a sentencing memorandum. Like that's what this is. It's a several hundred page masterfully written plea for sympathy from a pretrial detainee, which is the same structure in essence as a sentencing memorandum in criminal law. Often when we think about law and literature, particularly law within literature, there is a subtle critique of law. Did you see a perspective on law in, in Lolita? Is there, is there a critique of, of law? Is, a, is there a perspective about law that we get from, from, the, from the narrative? I don't know if it's a critique of law, but there is a perspective. It forces us to take the defendant's perspective. That's what's so powerful about it. It's a first-person account. And it is a prolonged plea for sympathy. It's full of excuses and explanations and justifications. And it's entirely, it's, it's entirely the construct of, you know, within the book, the narrator and outside the book, the author, Nabokov. But we are forced to understand if we can't sympathize or empathize, we are at least forced to understand this story from the defendant's perspective. So is that a... At the time that the book was written, would that have been a revolutionary insertion into a criminal process? That because you right in the second half of the of the essay, um, it's very apparent that it is common, right? That that and that we have a name for this. It is a it is a formal thing. Um, would that have been the case when this was written? Well, we have to go back to 1955, <laughs> certainly before the sentencing guidelines mm -hmm. and before the modern notion of a sentencing memorandum and guidelines. Mm -hmm. It was certainly uh, revolutionary and scandalous in the world of literature at the time. No, Nabokov could barely get it published. Mm -hmm. And then it was banned. So it is, uh, it is a reflection today of the modern notion of a sentencing memorandum, but written decades before mm -hmm. that modern notion came to be, you know, emerging from the sentencing guidelines and from formal documents today. And so on some level, right, we might, we might take Nabokov's um, uh, offering um, even, even of a most despicable, right, uh, narrative uh, and narrator uh, as in some sense, pressing up against uh, society's sort of willingness to silence those narratives in the context of 
uh, a criminal legal system, right? In, in a world yeah. pre-sentencing guidelines. Yeah, perhaps. I think that's right. Um, you know, one way to read this now, as I said, through modern eyes mm-hmm. and certainly through my lawyers and adult eyes, is it's 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 a it is almost a mad a, a magician's trick of writing. It's mm-hmm. so masterful because the facts of this story are so horrific. I mean pedophilia, murder, rape, almost no one even survives this book. People are dying left and right. It's a crime spree. The the main victim is a, starts as a 12-year-old girl. I mean, the facts are absolutely horrific. And when I think back to how I first read it and how it's often perceived mm-hmm. in popular culture as a, as a love story, I, I realize you know, if, if, if someone can take, if Nabokov can take these facts and create a document that's a plea for sympathy, and oftentimes successfully, because people view this as a love story, then really there are no facts are too horrific to at least try to speak from the defendant's perspective and garner sympathy. If he can do it on this, on this set of facts, any set of facts is, is at least worth the effort. To, so to I'm going to take you back to that. I, 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 to this, this, what you call both to your conception of sympathy and what you quote as impartial sympathy. So I want to start huh. there. Well, that's from the book. Right. Yes. What what do you think that means, impartial sympathy? Uh, well, I mean, I'm thinking about it as unbiased sympathy, but to come at uh, a defendant's set of facts, to come at any set of facts with a clean slate and try as best we can to view the facts from the defendant's perspective. Mm -hmm. We can take different perspectives on any set of facts. Mm -hmm. We can take the victim's perspective, the defendant's perspective, the prosecution's perspective. But what this document in particular asks us to do is step in the shoes of the defendant and see the history, see his childhood, see everything in context, that events do not happen in a vacuum, that he's more than just his crimes. Mm -hmm. And a similar document can be and is written by the government, the government sentencing memorandum. You know, victims have victim statements. And so any any legal case is going to be a collection of different perspectives. And what a sentencing memorandum in this book asks us to do is for a moment, look at it from the defendant's perspective, from the offender's perspective, and see that we are more than our worst crimes. And there's an entire history that we bring to any act, even bad acts. Right. So that 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 even evil has a history. Right. That mm-hmm. that. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, that's what's so I, I find so incredibly, uh, you know, just the, the talent of the writing of this book, because it's hard to envision worse facts. Mm-hmm. It's hard. There there are more horrific facts, but this is up there, uh, you know, repeatedly raping a 12 year old girl lying about her mother dying. She's an orphan. He's her stepfather. He kills a man. He you know, takes her across state lines. He pulls her out of school. It's just a brutal set of facts. And even this can, like, we can kind of see it because it's so well written. <laughs> you can sort of understand where the narrator is coming from, you know, in the hands of Nabokov, who's, who's one of the best writers. So I want to, I want to, Come back to, to, to what you say about sympathy in the piece. That is um, this relationship between sympathy and justice, mm. right? Because when I, when I, when I started reading it I, and, and, and it said, and you said, this unity between law and narrative illuminates a deep, essential goal shared by both genres. 
garnering sympathy. The notion of law without sympathy thus rings hollow. And before I moved on to the next <laughs> sentence, I wrote, is sympathy justice? Yeah. And then you write, finally, this essential link between law and sympathy shines a new light on the law's role to promote justice. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Well, this is in particular in the context of criminal law. Mm -hmm. So the stakes are so high in criminal law, the, someone's life and liberty are on the line, that I, I don't think we can view sentencing devoid of, devoid of sympathy as a just notion of sentencing. And I quote extensively, like Judge Cabranes wrote an, a fantastic book called mm -hmm. Fear of Judging. And uh, there's a lot of this in, in, in judicial opinions, especially, especially back in the day when the guidelines, the sentencing guidelines were viewed as mandatory. Than their their advisory, but when they were hard and fast rules, you know, judges were just up in arms. Like we are human beings, and we have to view criminal defendants as human beings. And uh, that's that's the notion that I get at at the end of the of the articles that in criminal law, in particular, sentencing carries a streak of humanity because the stakes are so high, and because it's human beings in front of the judge. One way to express that humanity is using sympathy as a lens, sympathy tethered to facts. But perhaps we get back to impartial sympathy at that point. You write again, and I'm, 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 I, I'm spending a lot of time quoting you because I, I was moved by, I, really thank you, Charles. I think the, the, the way in which you try to deal with the, the difficulty of reading this, right? It, meaning that there's, there's a challenge to reading even this essay. You say, neither Lolita nor Quilty live to tell their side of the story. So their rapist and murder respectively controls the narrative. Right. The, the characters' names are fictions upon fictions with pseudonyms shielding the real people. I'm interested in, in, in the use of the word shielding. Mm -hmm. As though it were protective, because I, in my mind, I, I was sitting there saying, disappearing them. How, well, how do you think about the tension there? Yeah, there, but there is a notion of of protection that uh, is a running theme in the novel, which is mm -hmm. why I chose that word in particular, because these are pseudonyms. I mean, it's it's very meta, right? It's the 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 author Nabokov presents this narrator Humbert Humbert, and these are his mem. This is his memoir. These are his prison notes, mm -hmm. and the narrator has chosen these pseudonyms to protect the real people. We have to put in quotes because it's entirely fictional. The real people, um, once this scandalous story is published, but there's a theme of protection throughout, which again goes to viewing the defendant as a human being, a whole human being rather than a statistic, because there are many moments when the narrator claims he's protecting Lolita. Mm -hmm. He wants the he wants his notes to be published only after she dies. It turns out she dies right after he does. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are many moments when he's trying to take care of her, or at least he expresses mm -hmm. that he's trying to take care of her. It's a theme throughout. And one of the ways he is trying to take care of her and others in the story is to offer these pseudonyms. And, but on what ground do we do we reject that? That is to say, on what ground do we say um, these trips, these um, this 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 um, description of Lolita as having made the first move, they um, uh, they they come wrapped in confession and plea. Mm -hmm. 
right? That and 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 as confession and plea, they also might appear to be strategy. And so, how do we? How how, how ought we to think about that? We think about it as we as we think of any sentencing memorandum. That's exactly right. It is a plea for sympathy, but there's an end goal, and the end goal is leniency. So, of course, it's strategic. Most everything in the law is strategic. But what's so interesting about a sentencing memorandum in the structure of this novel is it's sympathy from the defendant's perspective, and not just defendant, right? Offender's perspective, mm-hmm. with the strategy of garnering that sympathy. And the end goal is leniency in the criminal justice system. There was something about it, um, and maybe I've I've been I've been reading uh too too much prophetic um uh scripture um over the last few weeks um but right there's there's this right there's a kind of formula of the of of the prophetic that says you must both confess and only after that is there the possibility of some forgiveness some leniency some sympathy some response that um that is even willing to re-engage your humanity right but that 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 is conditioned upon some confession, some acceptance of responsibility uh, of of that. Do you do you do, and and if uh, if we thought uh, about the role that a, a kind of larger role that this dance plays, does it play that role? Can it play that role? That is to say, can a sentencing a document can that narration play the role of that kind of restoration it's i guess it goes to how we view the criminal justice system are we trying as 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 the narrator says in lolita are we trying to save our soul or save our head mm-hmm. and if you view the criminal justice system as overlapping with some spiritual element of truth and redemption, mm-hmm. then it's a venue. Well, I'm going to stop there. Um, thank you so much for 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 stopping by and and, and talking about this really um, really great essay. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this season of the Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Miami Law's International Law Program with over 100 courses each academic year for both the JD and LLM student. New offerings include United Nations negotiations, international law and war, and indigenous women's rights. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.